0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a daily program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. We're working our way through the two-year version of the RMM Scripture Reading Plan, and I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 73. I mentioned in the last episode that Psalm 72 is the last psalm in Book 2, which means, of course, that Psalm 73 is the first psalm in Book 3. Book 3 is made up mostly of the psalms of Asaph. 11 of the 17 psalms in this section were written by him or by someone associated with him. We'll talk about that later. There is one psalm of David in this batch and then a handful of others written by various other people. Now, Asaph, the original Asaph, was a very important figure during David's heyday in Jerusalem. After David brought the ark into Jerusalem and established Jerusalem as the center of political and religious life in Israel, he began to set up and provide for the worship of God's house. And Asaph was a critical figure in that part of the story. We read about that in First Chronicles 16, 4-7, where it says, Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemaramoth, Jehiel, Mathathiah, Eliab, Benaniah, Obed-Edom, and Jael who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So, Asaph was the chief of the Levites and in charge of the worship in the house of the Lord. Apparently, he was both a singer and a musician, and here we learn that he was a composer and a confessor. This is a penitential psalm, and it is one of the most beautiful prayers in the entire Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, there's a sense in which verse 1 is the conclusion to this psalm, or, or perhaps you could call it the foundation. He begins by stating the truth that doesn't change. God is good. He is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, he says, I was falling away. In this psalm, Asaph is confessing that he has been struggling with the sin of envy. It would seem that Asaph had some some struggles, some ailments, some frailties. Perhaps he was sickly or financially distressed. We don't know exactly. But we know that it caused him to feel some bitter envy towards those who looked like they were doing better than him. He was severely tempted to doubt the goodness and justice of God, and I think that's helpful for us to see. Good, strong, mature, gifted, prominent believers struggle with sin and temptation, Asaph was the leader of the Levites. He was a very high-ranking religious official. And yet, he was waging a secret war against sin. Matthew Henry says here, The faith, even of strong believers, may sometimes be sorely shaken and ready to fail them. There are storms that will try the firmest anchors. Many a precious soul that shall live forever had once a very narrow turn for its life, almost and well-nigh ruined, but a step between it and fatal apostasy. And yet, snatched as a brand out of the burning, which will forever magnify the riches of divine grace in the nations of those that are saved. Closed quote. Don't ever think that people you respect, the leaders of your church, well-known speakers or singers, don't ever think that they don't have their own battles. They most certainly do. And in fact, I would wager that the more responsibility they have and the more influence they exercise, the more fiercely they will be tempted. God will permit them to be tried so as to increase their usefulness. And the devil will want to discredit them so as to bring the name of God into disrepute. Both of those factors will contribute to an increase of spiritual affliction and difficulty. That was certainly the case in the life of Asaph, who continues his confession and complaint in verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, That His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Today we would say, these are the pretty people. These rich, happy, fortunate, successful, surgically enhanced people who seem to be living the Vita Loca without any regard for God. How is that fair, Asaph wonders. And thinking about that, stewing over that, led him to the brink of spiritual ruin. John Calvin says here, The prosperity of the wicked is taken as an encouragement to commit sin. For we are ready to imagine that since God grants them so much of the good things of this life, they are the objects of his approbation and favor. Maybe they're right and we're wrong after all. That's the whisperer of the devil, who, of course, is very interested, very invested in the prosperity of the wicked for the simple reason that it undermines the faith and confidence and joy of shallow and thoughtless believers. Verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This represents the nadir, the absolute lowest point of the psalmist's thinking. He actually begins to think that worshiping God has been a waste of time because it has not resulted in him being rich, healthy, or prosperous. On the contrary, identifying with God, being a leader and a servant in his kingdom has caused him to be enrolled, as it were, in the school of affliction. Having presented himself to God for service, he was immediately subject to a rather rigorous process of scourging, refinement, and purification. If that's how it's going to go, then what's the point? What's in it for me? It was thinking that and hearing himself thinking that that brought the psalmist to his senses. Tim Keller says here, the psalmist concluded that a good life has not brought him wealth or freedom from troubles and therefore has been in vain. But this unmasks his heart. His obedience was not a way of pleasing God, but rather a means of getting God to please him. When we say to God, I'll serve you only if X happens, then it is X that we love. And God is just a necessary apparatus for obtaining it. The shock of this admission begins to clear his mind, closed quote. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now the psalmist realizes how close he came to leading other people astray. He, he's a leader in Israel. He's a worship pastor. If he had ever given voice to what he had been thinking, who could even begin to assess the damage that he would have done? Listen, my friends, note this well. Bad thoughts are bad. But bad words or bad songs or bad sermons are infinitely worse. The more influence you have, the more restrained you should be in sharing any thoughts not confirmed by Holy Scripture. Thankfully, the psalmist has been brought up short. He has realized that his thinking was an error before he compounded his mistake by speaking it or singing it aloud. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seems to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. I love how Kidner describes this hinge in this penitential psalm. He says, the light breaks in as he turns to God himself and to him as an object, not of speculation, but of worship against his eternity, sovereignty, an underived being, these men of the moment are seen as they are. Closed quote. When Asaph worships, when his face is lifted and his eyes are raised to behold eternal truths, everything at ground level is immediately shifted. He sees everything clearly now through the lens of ultimate reality. These rich, happy, healthy people who reject God are not to be envied. They're to be pitied. Because wealthy or not, healthy or not, famous and well-loved or not, if they do not know God, then they will be judged, ruined, and forgotten. Seeing that changes everything. Changes how the psalmist looks at these people, but also how he looks at God. Matthew Henry says here, if there were not another life after this, we could not fully reconcile the prosperity of the wicked with the justice of God. But seeing the end, the psalmist understands now that God is not unjust. He is just very patient. He operates out of an eternal perspective. And he is never unfair, never late, and never wrong. Asaph sees that now. He says in verse 18, Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tares. This is such powerful and poetic language. The psalmist sees now in in worship how precarious is the prosperity of the wicked. The heights they achieve they cannot maintain. Their high places are slippery places. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly, terribly, and entirely. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Christians have wrestled with this language, but it cannot be denied. In the end, if people persist in their rejection of God, then they will be put away and despised. As C.S. Lewis put it in The Weight of Glory, we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged finally and unspeakably ignored. Seeing all of that, the psalmist deeply regrets his earlier sin and smallness. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph had been withholding in his praise because he had put God in the docket and he had found him wanting. He had robbed God of praise because Asaph didn't know how to understand these things, these complex workings in the divine economy. His small perspective became the choke point on his ministry of praise. He knows that now and deeply regrets it. God never changed, and Asaph should have been more constant and more fulsome in his worship. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. He says, I may have been slipping away from you, but you were holding on to me the entire time. This reminds me of a song that's very popular in our church right now. The song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I I don't know, but it seems reasonable to suppose that it was inspired at least in part by this psalm. The words of the first verse and chorus go very well with what Asaph is saying here. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. It was thinking thoughts like that and singing songs like that that brought Asaph to where we find him in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Matthew Henry says here, there is scarcely a verse in all the Psalms more expressive than this of the pious and devout affections of a soul to God. I think that is true. You're in a good place when all you really want is the Lord. You were made for that place and you were saved for that place. And that is the place that Asaph is now fixed upon. He said at the end of verse 24, afterward, you will receive me to glory. Plumer says here that glory, doubtless, includes eternal blessedness, all that leads to it. Asaph is fixed on heaven now. He has seen the Lord. He has seen his future, and he is ready now to walk and to worship in the meantime. Verse 27, for behold, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Having been reminded of ultimate realities, the psalmist has returned to a posture of thankfulness and deepest gratitude. He has been brought inside. He has been reconciled. He is near to the Lord. What else is there to say? What else really matters? In the end, even now, he has it all. He has the Lord. And with him, everything good and beautiful and eternal. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca you can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word.